Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Joining us today is Radu Uskai. He's assistant lecturer at the Bucharest University of Economic Studies, an associated researcher at the Center of Institutional Analysis and Development, Eleutheria, and at the Research Center for Applied Ethics. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Radu. Thanks. Thanks, Aaron and Trevor, for, for uh, inviting me here. It's, it's a great honor to be here. We're going to talk about intellectual property today, and I want to start with just that that very phrase because I think one of the interesting parts about intellectual property is the question of, is it really even property in the first place? Uh, th- that's a good question to start this discussion because uh, a huge chunk of, of time, effort, and, and papers have been dedicated to exactly this this question, right? Whether or not we could actually talk about um, about assigning, ascribing property rights in relation to uh, basically ideas, to, to immaterial stuff like like ideas. Uh, and within within let's say the broad uh, libertarian tradition, classical liberal libertarian tradition, uh, this is quite a topic of of contention because we actually don't have uh, let's say a unified libertarian stance on on intellectual property. I mean, I, I'm not so sure that we have a lot of unified stances on, on a lot of stuff, but on on intellectual property, we actually lack something like this. So, uh, I mean, some 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 uh, classical liberals and libertarians like uh, like Ayn Rand, for example. Uh, I mean, she said uh, that individuals have have the right to the product of uh, of their minds. Uh, another, let's say, new scholar, uh, Brian Quick. He, he's also uh, uh, famous for, for arguing in, in the Lockean framework uh, in favor of, uh, of ascribing property rights to, to ideas. Uh, but there's also this, this strong tradition uh, against, uh, against ascribing such, such rights, uh, and especially due to the reason that we're talking about, um, about immaterial uh, objects like, uh, like ideas. There's this uh, this quite famous uh, famous paper written by uh, by Stephen Kinsella, who's I guess quite quite famous in, in the uh, let's say general libertarian movement, uh, and one of his his counter uh, counter arguments and, and critiques uh, of intellectual property actually stems from uh, from the nature of uh, of immaterial objects, right? So he says that uh, we typically and generally uh, ascribe property rights and property actually as an institution uh, makes sense when we talk about uh, uh, scarce objects like I don't know bicycles laptops so on and so forth uh, because there's a possibility of, of conflict in relation with them uh, whereas when you talk about uh, about property rights like uh, like ideas uh, there actually might not be a way in which you could actually say that you could steal something right so if you cannot steal something if there's no possible conflict uh, with regards to an object, uh, then maybe even even the phrase intellectual property actually doesn't uh, doesn't make sense. Does it matter how the the philosopher? So we have we've had this question of different justifications for property. Um, does it matter that like Lockean justification for property, for example, or um, some sort of Kantian? Uh, how does that affect the intellectual property debate? Uh, well, it, it, it matters a lot because, uh, and it also matters a lot because if you take a closer look at, let's say, uh, various legal frameworks, uh, both existing and uh, and in, in recent history, let's say, uh, you, you can basically uh, observe that, uh, for example, uh, European laws have this this I don't know Kantian slash Hegelian flavor. Uh, European laws generally tend to favor this this personhood approach to uh, to property rights when it comes to ideas, whereas uh, the American system tends to be more uh, utilitarian in its uh, in its outlook. Uh, so it's uh, it, it matters because, um, for example, I mean some some might argue that uh, I don't know Locke is not right when it comes to property but uh, that person could still could still argue within a utilitarian framework for example that we need uh, intellectual property rights because without intellectual property rights uh, individuals wouldn't have uh, incentives to be creative so it doesn't matter whether i don't know mixing your uh, your uh, work with with something that it's previously unknown is the basis of property 
what matters is whether or not we have the right set of institutions in order to let's say increase the uh, uh, the aggregate welfare uh, at a social level so it, it matters a lot because those positions aren't necessarily coherent we're talking today about an essay that you wrote um, and we'll put we'll put in link up to this in the show notes but the the interesting contribution of your essay is to bring Hayek into this picture. So what is what does Hayek specifically bring to discussions of intellectual property? Because he doesn't seem to have said much actually about it himself. Yeah, he, he actually didn't. I mean, there are some 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 scarce remarks, for example, in, in the fatal conceit. Uh, but I mean what what I take from Hayek when, when analyzing social life and institutions is, is something that I call, let's say, Hayekian skepticism with regards to, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, orders uh, with regards to uh, state-enforced institutions. So uh, Hayek is really interesting because he's, he's fundamentally skeptical with regards to, um, to whether or not uh, copyrights or, uh, or even patents, but he's mostly focused on copyrights actually do function as, as incentives for, for creators to be, be creative. Uh, and it's also interesting because uh, copyrights, and especially copyrights, not only uh, patents and other examples of, uh, of intellectual property rights, are uh, basically direct creations of, of the state. And it's interesting uh, if we take a closer look at the specific history of, of copyrights, for example, in, uh, uh, in England. We see that copyrights are closely associated, for example, with religious wars, with uh, monopolies, uh, uh, which uh, kings and queens of uh, medieval and early modern Europe uh, tend to allocate. And they don't necessarily uh, respond, let's say, to a need on the, on the market of, of ideas or the market in, in economic terms. So it's, it's I guess, interesting to, to, to analyze this, this institution and its evolution and its meaning or its justification in present uh, present day uh, in the present day global context with these two uh, let's say lenses. So in the in the Hayek context, though, you said he doesn't talk about it much. It sounds like I think in your essay you found like all of the examples of him talking. I, about. I hope I hope <laughs> all of all of Hayek's quotes on uh, on copyrights and intellectual property are in my in my paper. Yeah, and, and they're sort of asides almost. But how does that relate to – how did he think of uh, physical property? Um, does, is there any connection between how we, we might we might expound on Hayek's views on intellectual property and how he felt about physical property? Well, I mean, uh, if, we, if we take a closer look at uh, what intellectual property rights uh, or at one of the consequences that establishing intellectual property rights has, it's uh, basically what, what he, and not only he, but, but a lot of uh, liberals and classical liberals who, who discuss this, this topic, called force scarcity. Right? So uh, ideas, once produced, aren't scarce as opposed to, uh, to material objects. Right? If someone utters, uh, I don't know, a, a poet, a poem or something like this, uh, then basically that poem can become something that's close to a public good. It's basically the ideal public good, right? We could all listen to the same poem in the same time uh, without, let's say, uh, being in any rivalry situation when it comes to enjoying it. Uh, so when we talk about intellectual property rights, we're talking about actually establishing uh, force scarcity in order to, uh, let's say, stimulate human creative processes. Uh, whereas uh, property rights in relation to, to material objects, uh, they are basically a result of the fact that uh, goods are scarce, right? It's a way of, uh, by trial and error, as, as Hayek would put it, it's a way in which we basically manage to, uh, uh, to live in a world in which, in which uh, material objects are, are scarce. Well, that's the interesting part, too, because there's the, the part of Hayek that says that the uh, physical property rights had an evolutionary element to them. They emerged in a sort of natural way, which is something very big for Hayek, not, not top-down constructivist rational uh, ordering of society, but bottom-up solving of problems, as you mentioned. And as you pointed out, uh, not only is that not true about intellectual property and where it came from, but also it has a very constructivist rationalist, the state trying to control things 
origin, which I didn't know until I read your essay, actually. But it's even true now. I mean, they, they're always manipulating copyright, like say the duration or stuff uh, for the purposes of constructing like a, a more rational order, which might just mean that Mickey Mouse never goes out of copyright, for example. Yeah, there's this um, there's these two economists, Michele Boldrin, he's Italian, if I'm not mistaken, and David K. Levine. Uh, they are the authors of this 2008 book, if I'm not mistaken, called uh, Against Intellectual Monopoly. And they have this chapter titled The Evils in Disney. And it's basically about this, about how basically uh, uh, Mickey Mouse will be copyrighted forever and ever and ever. Even if, I mean, Walt Disney is like kind of dead for a lot of time. Uh, so it, it's interesting if you, I mean, analyze within, let's say, a public choice framework, what, what happens when, when, when states uh, give uh, either, let's say, creative individuals or companies su such a power, how they basically tend to abuse it and how they tend to lobby uh, international organizations like, I don't know, uh, the World Trade Organization. Uh, to impose uh, strong protection of uh, of IP rights at the global level as actually a precondition for for free trade agreements. Um, so it's it's like a in, really interesting point again to to look at within uh, within a public choice uh, public choice framework. And what what I wanted to to, to add, sorry for for interrupting you. Uh, what I wanted to add is that the semantic part of how uh, intellectual property rights appeared is is like really interesting because. They emerged as uh, as explicit form of privileges. So in in, uh, in Venice, for example, in medieval Venice, this is the way they were they were actually entitled as privilegi privileges. Uh, and in other places, that they, they were basically framed as as monopolies because they actually do function as as monopolies, right? A company or an individual have a monopoly with a monopoly right with regards to reproducing uh, a certain I don't know, idea or, or any material uh, object, like a formula or something. I was hoping you could speak to, in your essay, you raise, so we have this this story that you just told of these institutions setting this up and granting monopolies and privileges. Um, but you also talk about this fascinating I don't know, cultural or even conceptual shift that seemed to drive it in terms of like the role of changing views of the role of the human mind in the creative process. And you so you compare it to like the Greeks, which one of the striking things if you read Greek literature, Greek poetry, is it always starts with sing o muse or or some sort of appeal to the muses. Can you can you talk a bit about that? Because I found it I found it totally fascinating. Yeah, this is this is something that at a certain point, I don't know, if this this lockdown continues even more and if if I get to get a break from from teaching online or if I get fully accustomed to doing this. I would actually write, like to write write a paper on this because I, I find the the early modern uh, pre enlightenment and and actually a bit of post enlightenment uh, to be to be actually a, a, an absolutely fascinating fascinating time in in our history because it's interesting to see how uh, how intellectual property rights and and copyrights uh, emerged as as a result of of certain let's say let, let's call them let's be amateur armchair historians and call them. Uh, revolutions, right? We had uh, a technological revolution. We had the, the, the invention, Gutenberg's invention, which basically uh, fundamentally reduced uh, the costs associated with reproducing books. Uh, but we also had this this ongoing economic revolution, which which uh, basically contributed to this emergence of um, of uh, of a middle class who who had the resources to to. I don't know, send their kids to school to, to also, uh, I don't know, uh, use reading as a way of, of spending their, their, their free time, so on and so forth. But also, and this is, this is really important that it comes from, uh, from some, some French philosophers, which I'm not necessarily a fan of. I'm not necessarily a fan of Foucault. Uh, but it, it's interesting the way in which, in which Foucault, but not only Foucault, analyzed this, this, let's say, evolution or actually emergence of this modern notion of being an author and of, of what authorship means because as as uh, as you mentioned Aaron uh, if we take a closer look at uh, creativity in uh, in ancient Greece uh, the ancient Greeks tend to they tended to to look at the creative process as not necessarily being uh, the result of your efforts so for them I don't know 
a Lockean argument in favor of intellectual property rights would have sounded a bit bizarre, right? Uh, poets or sculpture uh, or, or I don't know artists in general, uh, they weren't the originators of the ideas, but they were basically a vehicle for uh, for muses or gods to uh, to I don't know send some messages or, or transmit uh, something with with aesthetic value. Uh, this started started to change a bit in in Roman and especially in, in Byzantine times, uh, but mostly during during the Middle Ages, uh, they were more or less Greeks uh, Greek sorry in in their outlook because it wasn't necessarily the priest who who was let's say the creator of something even if we're talking about science uh, priests right had this uh, special link with God. And it was more or less God or certain saints who, who talked through through them, but this this starts to change when there are more books available because books become uh, uh, easier to reproduce and less costly. Uh, but also when when capitalism emerges, when when people started to enrich themselves, when people start to to see the value of of having an education, and when they start to learn reading, and when they start love uh, start loving. Uh, Doing stuff like I don't know, writing poetry, composing music, so on and so forth. So authorship, this idea of uh, uh, individuals as being creators, right? It, it's it's an invention of of uh, of this early modern slash enlightenment period. It's interesting how that works with you. Kind of mentioned with the Lockean concept of property, because although the Lockean concept of property, where you mix your labor with the land has something to do with scarcity. It also seems kind of like a, a moral claim based on effort. And, and a lot of people who are critics of that method of you know, acquiring property, like people like Georgists and socialists and people like this, you know, say that though ultimately this would mean that the property is only owned by the people who got there and put their, put their hands in the dirt and that's not just or equitable. But it's not easy to make a piece I mean, going back to this idea of the creation of the author and thinking that that person did this, like oh, the J.K. Rowling did this or Stephen King or Pearl Jam, that they made this this piece of music and that their effort should be rewarded. This is not about scarcity. This is about rewarding effort, that bringing something into the world that didn't exist before and that they, for, they therefore deserve compensation and, and maybe rights over it. Uh, is, that, is that a good argument or does that, does that make sense, at least conceptually? Uh, so even if, even if, I mean, I used to be more, more radical on this topic. I'm not as radical as, as I used to be, uh, let's say in my youth, even if I'm not necessarily old. Uh, but, uh, what you're saying makes sense because I, I'm not saying in any way that, uh, Locke doesn't make sense or that Kant doesn't make sense. I, I, I do say, and I will say this every time I get, uh, I get the occasion that Hegel doesn't make sense. I mean, anyone who's ever read Hegel, hopefully, uh, I'm with you on that feeling. one. Yeah. Uh, so Hegel doesn't make sense. Uh, uh, also, the, the, the same with regards to um, to thinking about the role of incentives and and what incentives uh, and why incentives are important within a utilitarian outlook. It, it's really interesting, Trevor, to to, to think about uh, the relationship between uh, between a creator and um, and his uh, his or her uh, creation, right? Because Right, J.K. Rowling created something out of almost nothing. So she didn't actually create it that out of nothing. Uh, Pearl Jam also created something out of something, right? Because no one creates something uh, ex nihilo, like, I don't know, uh, the Christian cosmology. There was nothing in the beginning and then God created, uh, God created the earth or something like this. Uh, but it is an effort that uh, creative individuals like uh, uh, musicians, uh, sculptures, uh, I don't know, whatever, whatever artist you might, you might think of, uh, actually has to endure in order to, to produce something. So uh, I guess, and I'm saying this as a critic of the institution of, of copyrights, that being a creative individual establishes some sort of a moral claim with relation to, to what you produce. So you can uh, not only reasonably, but you can forcefully uh, claim uh, the status of an author in relation to uh, to what you produce. The question is whether uh, cl having such a moral claim to authorship also entails something that we we uh, think of as as a property right. And this is this is where I think, or this is where I find uh, this shift a bit a bit contentious, because. 
it's not clear again if uh, if property rights are uh, I don't know the only institution we could use in order to let's say uh compensate them for for the effort that they uh, they made during that lifetime in order to uh, to bring about uh, pieces of uh, of art of, or artistic productions so uh, there is no necessary link between again having a moral claim to being an author and uh, and receiving something that that could be considered a, a property right there's no necessary condition does this mean that we should conceptually i guess if I try to rephrase what you've said, that there's almost like a distinction between copying something and plagiarizing something. Yeah, that's it, in this in the sense that, like, as the author, I have I I wrote this novel and it's my novel in the sense that I'm the I'm the creator of it. I'm the author of it, and so I have a moral right to that relationship to it. Mm-hmm. And so if you if you copy it, so if we say I don't have property rights in it, then you simply copying it but like continue to give me credit doesn't necessarily violate that particular moral claim that I have. But if instead you copy it and stick your own name on it or potentially take my name off of it, then it's you've done something wrong because you violated that. And if that's if that's the case then does that mean that we could we could see reason to have say no nothing that looks like copyright but still laws against or penalties in the case of like outright plagiarism absolutely i mean and and i i'm I'm really happy that you made this distinction because this is also something that I actually had had a, a presentation at the conference on is especially this topic exactly this topic sorry uh so having this 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 moral claim to authorship means that Plagiarism is really problematic, but in order to to argue that that plagiarism is is problematic, you don't necessarily need need property rights uh, in the sense of, of copyrights. Uh, when when we uh, began talking about whether or not it makes sense to uh, to ascribe uh, property rights in relation to uh, to, to ideal uh, to immaterial objects like like ideas, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the role of, of scarcity and taking into account the fact that ideas aren't scarce. You cannot say that you're stealing something. Now, when, when someone plagiarizes something, the difference uh, as opposed to, to copying is that, well, you, you actually are stealing something. You're stealing, l- let's say that you write a book or a poem, uh, and I like it so much that I'm just going to copy it and uh, stick my name onto it, right? You, you actually have a new book, right? It, it, came out right i'm gonna just stick my name on um, uh, on the book and say that that's mine in, in, in a case like this i actually steal something from you it's a theft of of identity and your identity isn't a it's actually a scarce uh, scarce object right there's only one aaron ross powell uh, who wrote the book that book in in the world so it it, it is a case to, to be made that, that plagiarism is is highly problematic uh, due to, let's say, Lockean concerns or Kantian concerns with regards to, to authorship. But this doesn't necessarily entail that uh, copying your book or, I don't know, making it available on, uh, on certain uh, international databases is necessarily problematic from, from a moral standpoint. Sure, it is from a legal standpoint, but laws aren't necessarily just all the time. It, it's interesting. I like this connection because... There could be many moral duties that arise from the act of authorship, and copyright doesn't. Or copyright doesn't have to be one of those. Uh, like, like if let's say we got rid of copyright tomorrow, and then J.K. Rowling publishes another Harry Potter book, and someone decides to just republish that book uh, without her name on it, and without just say with a different name on it. Sure, it would be out there in the marketplace, um, but it, it might be a, a violation of some moral code. But it also could be the case that if you go and you buy the the non real one, there, there's social costs. And people say you, you're buying, you're not giving the author money. You should be giving the author money. So if you see someone with a knockoff Harry Potter, you might just chastise them and say you've done something wrong. Even though we're not going to say you broke any law necessarily, you've done something wrong by buying a knockoff and not giving her her due. And that we see that happens with a lot of the sort of name your price or people, if you ask them to pay for something of what they're willing to pay on, say, SoundCloud, they will pay and they think that they should pay, that they feel an obligation to pay. 
Uh, so that that maybe fulfills the moral claim here without going all the way to copyright. And I actually fully endorse this. I mean, I do 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 think that we have a, a supererogatory duty to to do this with regards to I don't know our favorite uh, musicians, uh, I don't know, writers, uh, poets, so on and so forth. Uh, so it it I, I I really do feel that it's something that we should do. What I find problematic is the idea that people could be punished for uh, uh, for copying books or or music and making them available in uh, I don't know digital libraries or making them available on torrent trackers or so on and so forth. Yeah, you have a footnote too in your in your paper which I which was popped in my head even before I saw the footnote about fashion. Mm-hmm. It's like they don't have there's fashion is a world where there is no intellectual property. And we still revere and we we still have brands and people still make a lot of money and there's a lot of innovation. How, how is that related do you think to the freedom of the fashion industry? Uh well, I mean it's I mean, I, I use this, this this example in order to argue that you don't necessarily need a strong copyright protection or even any copyright protection in order to have, uh, I don't know, to spur creativity, right? It, it depends a lot on the specific incentives that people have in their own uh, in their own market niche. So I'm not I'm not necessarily willing to say that uh, I don't know were we to to abolish our current uh, copyright. Uh, copyright institutional global framework, we would have, I don't know, more musicians or better music. Though, were we to take a closer look at the music that, I don't know, is quite popular nowadays, and were we to look at the way in which copyright protection has increased, I don't know, maybe there is this bizarre correlation between the two. Uh, But going back to to my previous idea, it's again a counterexample to those who, who argue that we need strong copyright protection in order to uh, to have creativity uh, and even to have have profits. And it's something that should make us think uh, whether or not copyright protection in general or strong copyright protection like we presently have nowadays uh, is necessarily necessary or or morally warranted in the in the first place. And whether or not, and whether or not, actually uh, copying stuff is is bad because one one of my my my, and it's not fully my uh, my contention, but uh, I constantly find it hard to believe that we could have lived in a world with uh, Netflix, Spotify, uh, with uh, Steam, for example, for gamers, with uh, I don't know, three uh, D cinema. Without uh, without piracy and without people who uh, constantly uh, broke laws with regards to, to copyright protection, because and this is something that I I, I, I mean I, don't, I might be wrong. I hope I'm not, but I I tend to believe that uh, this ubiquity of of property uh, of uh, copyright infringement in the infancy of the internet is what tended to spur innovation when it comes to offering uh, consumers some sort of a premium. So far, we've been talking about creative outputs as if they're all kind of the same thing, that there's there's artists and there's what they make, and then there's markets and copyright and notions of property that exist. But, but we're really talking about a lot of different markets. There's there's music, there's books, there's movies, there's fashion, as we just mentioned. And depending on how distinct they are from each other in their features, it might be that like finding an example of something functioning in one doesn't necessarily carry over to the other. So let's take the fashion, Radu, that you mentioned earlier as as an example of here's a market that seems to function, incentives that seem to function without copyright. So people can there are there are fashion designers and they design clothes, and then other companies, other individuals can come around, can come along and make copies and sell copies of those clothes. But in fashion, there's a notion of authenticity that that the authentic item is the item that was made by this fashion designer or the fashion designer's brand, and the other things are knockoffs. And so when you go and you see the designer purses for sale at the street vendors in a city, um, you know that those are knockoffs and they're not the authentic thing, and there's a status with owning the real thing. But in a lot of markets, especially ones for digital content, 
the notion of authenticity doesn't seem to make much sense. You know, like a a authentic Kindle file that I get from Amazon of a Stephen King novel is identical in every way we can think of to that same Kindle file I pirate off of a BitTorrent website. And the experience of owning it is identical. There's, I mean, there's no distinguishing the two or similar with a file that I download off a BitTorrent of, you know, like an album versus those files streaming to me on Spotify. And so in the absence of that, can we really say that a situation like the fashion industry would work in these other arenas if there's no there's no functional way for authenticity to work? Uh, this is a really good question. And it's, it's a really tough question because, again, it, it should involve like a tremendous amount, amount of research. But I'm going to start by, by uh, totally agreeing with, with this, this, the, the premise of, of basically your question, or let's say the assumption, right? Any sane uh, discussion with regards to, to copyrights should, should take into account that uh, there is no one-size-fits-all solution because, uh, let's say, creativity is, is so diverse from, from field to field. So uh, it's, it's interesting to, to, if you were to take a closer look at the fashion industry, right? A lot of what, what we tend to think about fashion are actually positional goods, right? It's one thing to, to own a Louis Vuitton bag but it's it's a completely different thing to to own uh, I don't know a Vuitton bag which looks the same but it just it has some, some different uh, uh, some different letters uh, switched. When it comes to uh, to uh, I don't know books as as in your example, right? We don't, uh, as you mentioned, uh, actually care about the authenticity of uh, uh, of the copy that we that we own, right? It doesn't actually make a difference for me. If uh, I own your book, or if uh, in a physical form, or if uh, if I own it on uh, on my laptop, if I if I have it on my laptop, sorry, if my purpose is to I don't know read it and uh, use it as a teaching material for uh, uh, for my students. Uh, although, were I to make just a, a short digression, there are ways in which you could talk about authenticity, right? If you own a book which has uh, an autograph, for example. Uh, it's something that uh, uh, a copy that you, you pirated from uh, from BitTorrent uh, couldn't couldn't actually uh, be thought of as a replacement. But in, in that case, the book means something more than just I don't know the ideas that uh, uh, that you have access to uh, by by reading it. So uh, go, going back to to, uh, to what I earlier said. Uh, one, one, let's say, sane uh, presupposition when it comes to actually discussing about copyright policy in the, in the real world, in this non-ideal world that we live in, is uh, to, to take a closer look at the fact that there's no one-size uh, solution that fits, fits any, any creative uh, domain, right? It works in fashion, right? Not having copyright protection due to its specificities. Uh, maybe it might not work in music. Maybe due to the fact that, I don't know, artists wouldn't have copyright protection, uh, hypothetically, uh, they would be less creative and, and therefore we would have less, uh, less quality music, so to speak. Uh, now, this, this is an empirical claim, right? Uh, and we could, at least in part, uh, test this claim. And uh, the economists I, I mentioned in the beginning, Baldrin and Levine from, from that book, uh, Against Intellectual Monopoly, actually took a closer look at uh, the impact that the introduction of copyright for uh, opera compo uh, compositions and for opera composers. Okay, so what, what impact did it have in the 18th century? And uh, one interesting conclusion that they arrived to is that well, while the UK had the strongest uh, uh, strongest uh, copyright regime uh, in place uh, at, the, uh, at that specific time and place in, in the world, they had the fewest composers uh, in, in Europe at the time. So again, sure, we, we, we could say that, well, the world was a bit different, right, uh, in, in the 18th century. But if it's an empirical claim, this is a way in which we could, well, basically test it and see whether or not we, we would have people being uh, creative and, composing if you're talking about composers or writing if you're talking about uh, authors. 
if uh, if we were to, co- to come back to uh, this, this comparison between uh, fashion and uh, writing books, for example, maybe maybe you could make the case that some uh, some small protection could be uh, could be needed on on a broad utilitarian framework, and it's something that. Uh, and this is this is an argument that uh, Tom Bell makes from I don't know if you, if he's still at, at Mercatus, but if I'm not mistaken, he he was also a guest in in your uh, podcast right a couple of uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and his argument is that uh, well, basically, the biggest problem with with the copyright regime and system nowadays, uh, it's actually that it's 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 like Jabba the Hutt. It basically grew. And it's like this disproportionate blob, right? Uh, it tends to favor uh, certain specific uh, business interests, uh, and it doesn't actually serve the purpose that that it used to serve uh, in, in I don't know 1790. Uh, that's that's the date that he, he goes back to. Uh, so, uh, as a short answer to, to your question, I, I generally tend to tend to say when it comes to I don't know whether or not we should reform our current copyright system, is that First and foremost, we don't need the same copyright regime and copyright protection to each creative field that we might think of. But there is a strong argument to be made in favor for uh, for lowering protection uh, for uh, for artists, no matter what what type of uh, field they're uh, they're into. It's interesting because with Aaron's question with fashion. I mean, it could be the case that the authenticity element of fashion, I mean, as you said, it's a positional good also, so that matters. But the authenticity of fashion and what has occurred, one of the things that you learn, you learn this in law school if you take intellectual property, is that uh, there is uh, – so many of these bags have um, the logo on them uh, you know, as the pattern essentially. And one reason for that is because the logos can – they have, there's a trademark element there. Uh, where where they so they've adapted a type of authenticity and a method of designing these bags within the property regime that that they are in, and if you imagine taking away on these other ones that don't matter as much for authenticity, imagine taking away all the copyright protection, it ends up becoming a business proposition where you know you, you do you sell super ultimate editions of Harry Potter or Stephen King that are signed. Um, and that's how you say, you know, we're going to give you a special physical copy. So don't buy the knockoff and all the different things that they could come up with for not buying the knockoff. And maybe even the view of what authentic is would change based on the industry itself changing. And also it's just possibly the case that they're like musicians are making too much money and maybe authors are making too much money. Like Spotify, people are complaining all the time on Spotify that the musicians aren't paid enough, but I'm not exactly sure how much musicians should be paid. Uh, and people make, and people make music for free all the time. I've, I've done it for years. And so, uh, that essentially they've captured rents and that in the face of quote unquote knockoffs, they would have to charge less. For or, or provide a service like Spotify that is so good and so easy that it actually makes pirating no longer attractive, even and then to maybe feel like that you're giving something back to the artist too. So all those things together would create a more um, sort of market friendly and just actually in line with the with the expectations without rent seeking involved. And something that Hayek I think would would be behind. Yeah, that's quite a Hayekian point, and this is this is actually one one of the the points I'm I'm uh, I'm making toward towards the end of my paper. I, I try to give this let's say broad Hayekian reading of uh, why Spotify or Netflix or other uh, other platforms like this appeared, and whether or not we should uh, blame, but in the good sense, uh, copyright infringement and uh, and piracy because. Uh, Again, I fail to see how uh, how Spotify would emerge uh, without again having uh, having especially in, in the infancy of the internet uh, so many sources for for pirating music, for example. And it's interesting, and again, it's it's something that also happened happened to me and to to a lot of my my, my friends who actually used to do this. So I, I used to pirate almost everything. I mean, I mostly pirate all the books I, I have and I, I've read up to this point. Uh, and especially, I mean, uh, philosophy and academic textbooks, which are like really expensive as a result of this this forced scarcity. So, I mean, without piracy, uh, Romania would have been even more backwards. So if, if, if you consider Romania backwards right now, imagine 
how 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 bizarre it would be for for you to to interact with us without having access to uh, uh, to, to pirated books. So it would be absolutely insane. <laughs> uh, but jokes uh, jokes aside, uh, it's something that, for example, I, I've stopped doing. So I don't don't pirate music anymore. I just use uh, I use Spotify. Uh, I started to buy vinyls, however, uh, because I, I do search for, for a premium when it comes to, uh, to this experience. I'm with you on that. And, uh, and it's, again, it, it, it's interesting because in, in the absence of, of piracy, again, I, I thought, I, I think, I tend to think that, that it would be, or they would have had a, a, I don't know, a difficult case to make for, for a service like, like Spotify or iTunes or, or, or the likes. So in this sense, this is this is another Hayekian, let's say, insight that I that I deploy in the paper that, that piracy, that copyright infringement, is a discovery mechanism, right? It's 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 a way in which we as customers could could think could 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 test something and see whether or not uh, it makes sense to endure, let's say, the uh, the opportunity cost of uh, paying I don't know twenty uh, ish dollars for uh, for for a vinyl or uh, I don't know paying. Uh, 100 euros for uh, for a festival in in, in I don't know, Belgium or something like this, uh, and there are some studies who, who tend to to mostly agree with this point that the people who are uh, most prone to actually spend more money on movies, on books, on on music, uh, or on uh, on live performances are people who actually have this this mixed pattern of. Uh, pirating, but also of buying stuff. So it's not uh, the people who tend to to uh, avoid totally piracy that are the most willing to uh, to give more money, for example, to to artists uh, in in concerts. So this is, I guess, this is one of the most. I mean, this is one of the benefits, the fundamental benefits that actually piracy brought forth for uh, for artists, companies, and generally to the market. It, again. Uh, just to make make an analogy with, with Spotify, think about how uh, how uh, immersive and interesting uh, the uh, the gaming experience is nowadays, as opposed to how it used to be. Uh, I don't know, ten or fifteen years ago. I mean, ten years ago, all my friends pirated uh, pirated their, their their video games. Now all of them are on Steam, and it's it's a social event. It, it's not only I don't know a, a random guy or a random random girl. Just sitting in, in in I don't know uh, at her desk uh, and playing uh, playing WoW. It's it's a social experience. It's an immersive social experience. That it's it's actually a premium that that Blizzard is offering as opposed to just having a pirated version on uh, on your laptop. But again, I do see a, a correlation between uh, between these uh, between these two. I can completely confirm that I. I used to pirate a ton of music um, and I did it as a music discovery mechanism. Uh, I would look at all the concerts that were coming to town and, and download stuff of the bands without you know, knowing that if I maybe I'd want to go to the show. And then even after I downloaded something, I would then go and buy their vinyl because I, I didn't feel like I really owned it. And I wanted to give back to the artist. Now I'm not sure that I'm normal in that regard. And I also have a lot of vinyl, vinyl records, but um, I, it shows that it's possible to, to think about how free sharing of stuff can help out the artists themselves and change their business model. I, mean, I as someone, you know, as an, an intellectual who writes things, I would not want my stuff to be locked down under the kind of copyright that would make it illegal to copy it or things like this. And someone says, Oh, I, I listened to, or I read your piece. Um, or if we had free thoughts on some sort of, you know, paywall or something, that's not better for what you're trying to accomplish. And most musicians would say, I just ultimately want people to listen to my stuff. It, it seems though, I'll go back to things being different for different markets. Um, that these arguments, the one market that seems like it would not function in this regime is movies. Um, so right now, yeah, we have we have Netflix and Amazon Prime and HBO Go and you know this ever-growing list of services you can pay five to fifteen dollars a month to get access to. But the reason that we have that is because piracy copyright was enforced. And so what I mean is um, that we use – you subscribe to Netflix because it has some titles that you want to watch. You don't really subscribe to Netflix 
has like the robust discovery system that like Spotify has. Spotify has brings a lot of value on top of just giving you access to an enormous catalog. Um, Netflix doesn't. The other ones really don't. It's just this is the easiest way to get access to these things. But I think the reason that it's the easiest way to get access to these things is because making an easy access system that is that skirts copyright is risky for those people who would do it. Um, and and so like by way of example, um, there was an app that was around for a while I think called like Popcorn Time that you could download on your computer and basically was Netflix for BitTorrents. You'd load it up and you would see a list of just like, you know, cover art for a whole bunch of movies, often movies that were still in the theaters. And you just double clicked on one and it started playing. And you could stream it to your television and whatever. And you could also, it had a search engine. So it was basically a Netflix interface, but behind the scenes, it was BitTorrent and it was pirating things. Um, and the reason that we pay, that so many people are willing to pay $15 a month for Netflix is because popcorn time is is prevented from rolling out to as many platforms and is widely because of copyright um and and movies in particular like you want to support the artists but we don't tend to think of movies that way there are some there's some people who are really into them who will buy you know the dvd just to support the you know the independent filmmaker but most people won't you don't really tend to buy much merchandising for most films because films are like a i watched it once and i'm done with it whereas an album is something that you know like i'm going to listen to this album hundreds of times um so is that is that market sufficiently different that we like i guess so is the story of the emergence of Netflix and Amazon Prime different from the story of the emergence of Spotify and and is it the case that I mean if we got rid of copyright in movies especially with digital distribution that we basically wouldn't have a film industry because so Trevor can sit at home and he can make music um, Trevor can't sit at home and make a movie um, these are incredibly expensive things to make that require a whole bunch of people, huge upfront costs, and so on. They're not really – I mean there are student films and amateur films, but most of us only watch those on like you know when Red Letter Media makes fun of them on YouTube. Is is that industry sufficiently different that this story doesn't work with it? Uh, so th this, is, this is like a really good question because you're, you're absolutely right. The fixed costs associated with uh, – I don't know, producing a blockbuster, for example – are pretty huge, uh, but I would have some some let's say uh, counter questions. I mean, I know uh, I usually don't 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 answer to questions with, with another with, with some questions, but uh, I I do have some let's say more or less uh, rhetorical questions. Uh, do we actually really need another Avengers movie? Yes, we do. <laughs> Sorry, Rodney, we do. <laughs> I don't know, man. I I mean, I like you, but I don't side with you on this. Uh, uh, I mean, sh sure, we wouldn't have uh, have movies like this anymore. Maybe uh, because and this, I mean, uh, another claim that that I make in uh, in my paper is that uh, well, wh what about crowdfunding, right? And uh, and platforms like this, like I don't know, Kickstarter, for example, uh, could they prove to be uh, a useful uh, useful way of basically producing? Uh, producing art and artistic goods like movies, uh, documentaries, music, so on and so forth. Well, I mean, there are some, uh, some positive, let's say, uh, results of musicians or, um, or even uh, movie producers who, who financed at least part of their uh, movies uh, through, uh, through such, uh, such uh, financing. But not at the level needed for, I don't know, producing another Avengers movie. But the thing is, I mean, uh, copyrights tend to tend to distort the market, right? Because they force scarcity, and that's why things actually cost more than they should cost. That's why you have to pay actresses so much. That's why you have basically fixed costs associated. That's why, at least in part, the fixed costs are so high. But to uh, coming to, to to a previous point I, I made I made I mean if we're talking about I don't know reforming the the current copyright uh, regime and system maybe if I don't know we say like like Trevor that we need another Avengers movie then maybe 
we could still say as as libertarians or classical liberals that there should be a case for a minimal protection when it comes to uh, to copyright copyrights in relation to to movies but what's what's interesting and where i actually don't necessarily fully agree with with what you said Aaron is that and and i i used to do this especially when when writing my my phd thesis because actually my phd thesis is is about this about torrenting stuff piracy and then the let's say ethical implications of of this uh, and I used to do this each year uh, when I was enrolled as, as a grad student here in, in Bucharest. Uh, and I took a closer look at the movies, the top 10 movies with uh, the biggest budgets of the year and the amount of time that it was copied, torrented, pirated uh, online. And it's interesting that actually there's, there's actually a positive correlation between the amount of downloads and the success at the box office. I mean, I'm not saying that it's a correlation between those, those two, but it's obvious that having uh, having a movie that's heavily pirated doesn't negatively impact your income. And again, even if piracy used to be, because piracy actually is, is decreasing as uh, as alternatives like like Netflix uh, or Amazon Prime or Hulu appeared, even when piracy was, let's say, uh, internet piracy, online piracy was was in its prime. Actually, the, the budgets for movies increased. Actually, the movie-going experience began to be more immersive because more 3D technology was, was being used. And it's stuff that you cannot have at home uh, regardless of the fact that you have, uh, I don't know, the most, most uh, uh, complex home, uh, home cinema system available. So it, it could still be a case, uh, we, we could still make a case that uh, copyright infringement at least should be to- tolerated and not criminally prosecuted because... It would be it could be quite it would be quite difficult to actually argue that piracy, for example, and uh, illegal copies actually harm the financial interests of uh, actors, of producers, of uh, companies like I don't know Disney. And having mentioned Disney, I'm pretty sure that they're gonna make a lot of money by selling uh, I don't know Baby Yoda trinkets than by, uh, I don't know, the amount of money that, they, uh, that they'll receive through uh, online movie streaming platform. I think you hit, on, hit something important where you would have to, you, clearly there's a huge demand for these big Avengers movies. And I'm definitely one of those people. And so you, t- tomorrow IP goes away and you try and figure out how you can make sure that, you know, we can make this movie and the people can come see it, but it won't be copied in a way that me- that affects that it's not worth to make the movie in the first place. And so, I mean, you can imagine theaters bu- like buying theaters that are essentially locked down. So you say you kickstart this. And if you want to come see it on the big screen with all these technologies that, that Radu mentioned, we're going to put it in 3D. We're going to put it with smell-o-vision and all this crazy stuff to get you to come to the theater. And then you go to this place and you have to, you know, they're not going to let you film it or anything. And you pay to get in and experience it like a, like an amusement park ride. Um, I still think that they would exist, but even better, this is the most important part, Radu, there would be tons more Avengers movies Mm -hmm. because it wouldn't just be owned by Disney. Uh, We could all go make an Avengers movie right now. We could make uh, 30 different Spider-Man movie and the one that's trying to win is not because they own the IP. Anyone can make a Spider-Man movie, but you have to make the best Spider-Man movie to get people to come out. So it would actually be even better. It would be so many Marvel movies, Radu, you wouldn't even be able to contain yourself. And we we might actually have uh, I don't know a better ending for Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> yes, and, that too, because someone would just go to remake it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there is also I mean uh, because Aaron, you mentioned J.K. Rowling. There there is so many good good uh, fiction written by amateur writers by people again who are who aren't professional writers like like J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling is sorry. So stuff written uh, within the universe of of J.K. J.K. Rowling, which can only exist. And on on I don't know forums online and cannot be uh, sold by uh, by those uh, those individuals because well they would infringe on J K J K Rowling's uh, uh, copyright to to the universe that that she created uh, so yeah I mean Trevor yeah that, that's I mean that, that's also a, a point I, I should have made yeah I mean not having copyright protection for Avengers might actually mean that this could be a way of spurring innovation. Uh, but it, it would also be important to, let's say, rethink the way, the, I don't know, the, the consumer ethics that we have. So uh, were we to live in a world without uh, copyright protection or without strong copyright protection, 
if we like something, I don't know, if we like Avengers, then we should be the types of individuals that should be, uh, that should contribute to, I don't know, crowdfunding, uh, crowdfunding campaigns to, to finance, I don't know, the production of uh, our preferred Avengers, uh, Avengers scenario. Uh, presently, and I wanted to say this, I wanted to sneak this, this idea in a, in a special context, and I guess this, this is it. It's something that my, my, my former PhD supervisor uh, mentioned uh, at a certain point when, when we were talking. And uh, it's, it's not something that I actually spend a lot of time thinking about, but I always find, found it uh, such a fascinating idea. Uh, so at, at one point, he, he said something like, well, brother, don't you think that copyrights in a way function as minimum wage laws? And uh, I mean, when, when he first told me this, I was like, ah, I don't know what exactly the link, but technically they actually function the same way in which minimum wage law functions, right? You need to pay someone something like this, otherwise you don't have access to that. It's also a way of, well, uh, making something that isn't scarce or isn't as scarce as, as it would be if you institute it, scarcer. So uh, it's, it's, it's something that I guess we should, should take into account, right? The, 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 let's say, pragmatics of, uh, of uh, instituting uh, copyright protection, be it uh, strong or not. But I, I am going gonna, gonna, uh, gonna to say that, well, I, I have no idea whether or not, uh, I don't know, a world without complete copyright protection when it comes to, to movies might actually be uh, work like, like I, uh, I, I'm saying right now. But I'm positive that uh, we don't need uh, a strong copyright protection in order to have access to uh, uh, to, a, to I don't know a ton of uh, of I don't know, immersive experience when it comes to movies, books, music, so on and so forth. The core of the Hayekian project, as it pertains to building out the rules of a society, is. A focus on spontaneous order from bottom-up growth and a recognition that knowledge is widely dispersed throughout society um, and that we're typically better off if people can act upon their localized knowledge and then use markets and prices and mechanisms of that sort to to aggregate that knowledge rather than you know really smart people at the top trying to command things. Given that, and given that we currently have a entertainment industry, a publishing industry, a music industry, a fashion industry, and so on that exist within these regimes of robust copyright, um, how how do we apply the Hayekian analysis going forward? If we're good Hayekians and we have we want to replace copyright with a bottom up system how do we go about that do we just do we just abolish the whole thing and see what evolves that that, that could be uh, could be let's say a, a plausible strategy right let's see what actions what, what institutions emerge as a result of uh, human action and not of human design and there are some some arguments that uh, I don't know. For example, David Friedman and other other uh, libertarians or anarcho-capitalists tend to tend to uh, tend to argue for, which are I mean, they aren't necessarily Hayekians, but they do have they do make some sort of a point which which is uh, similar to the whole spontaneous order tradition uh, that you could have uh, competing, let's say, uh, legal frameworks for for intellectual uh, uh, for intellectual uh, production. Uh, protection. So this this could be a really really interesting uh, social, political, and and moral experiment, right? Just trash the whole system and see what emerges, uh, and especially see what emerges if you don't have um, if you don't have cronyism, right? Because right now you have big companies like like Disney, like like Sony, who constantly lobby uh, governments worldwide. Uh, to uh, to increase uh, to increase the level of protection for for the goods that uh, that they buy because and it's 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 something that uh, a lot of the people who actually tend to to, to argue uh, within a Lockean or Kantian framework framework sorry 
in favor uh, for intellectual property uh, tend to uh, I don't know they, they just tend to um, tend to minimize the, the importance of this. So they spend a lot of time talking about the moral claim that uh, that individuals have in relation to to their creation. Right? Kantians and then Hegelians say that well uh, we should own I don't know a poem or uh, or a musical composition because it's basically a part of our personality of our identity. It's a way of uh, asserting basically your, basically your will in, in the external world. But if you take a closer look at who owns most, uh, most intellectual property, well, it's not artists. It's mostly, mostly again, big companies who use their, their, uh, their power to, to lobby the government. It's not, uh, I don't know, small artists actually trying to make a living. Most of them are more or less either in favor of, uh, of abolishing uh, copyrights altogether or in favor of a weaker protection for, for copyrights. So were we to do this, uh, were we to, uh, again, burn it all down, like, I don't know, Rome, Rome, uh, Rome burned, and let's see what, what emerges from this. Uh, I don't necessarily know whether a no copyright world would emerge. I'm not so sure. But I'm pretty sure that without, uh, without cronyism, uh, the world that would emerge would be one with, uh, s- with fundamentally less uh, copyright protection and with fundamentally more uh, creativity. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.